Merry Christmas and happy 2019, everybody. Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, building off of our last series on the papacy in Scripture. Now we're going to talk about the broader church and the authority of the Catholic Church in Scripture. And today we're going to start out with talking about the authority in Scripture, but also in this entire series, we're going to work through the succession of that authority, so apostolic succession, understanding uh, what, what the authority means and what that looks like, doctrines versus dogmas in the Catholic Church. We're going to talk about the ecumenical councils throughout the 2000 years, the consequences of not having the magisterium or the authority of the teachings of the Catholic Church and misunderstandings of the church. So today we're going to, on this uh, part of the series, we're going to talk through authority and scripture. So just a quick overview of today's episode, we're going to talk about the four markings of the Catholic Church, which is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Those are the four markings of Jesus' church. And then we're going to talk and we're going to work our way through the Gospels and the New Testament letters to show the authority that Jesus established in his church on the Twelve Apostles and how that worked out through the first generations of the church and scripture. And it is very much the Catholic Church and scripture that we're going to see. So first, let's talk about that first marking, one. So the unity of the Catholic, of the church that Jesus established. So we see back in the episodes on the Pope that we worked through a lot of different uh, scripture passages that show the unity, the stress of unity in scripture. And it all stems from salvation history for one. And then two, Jesus himself in John 17, praying to the Father that we may be one. So this, vis- this visible one so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent from the Father. So if you go back and listen to that, there's a lot on the unity, but also this unity is visible because even just look through the covenants of salvation history that were made, they were all visible unities that were uh, that were structured. So uh, the first one that was made was an at, with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1-3, there was going to be one holy couple. In uh, Genesis 9 with Noah, uh, that's a one holy family. Uh, then he made a God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis fifteen seventeen and twenty two, and that it was one holy tribe. And then he established a covenant with Moses in Exodus twenty four. That was going to be one holy nation. And then David in Second Samuel seven. That was one holy kingdom. And so Jesus in Luke twenty two. He founded one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so all of these were visible signs pointing to the reality of God wanting to espouse himself to all people visibly. So just a quick point. So like Adam and Eve, that was uh, God espousing himself. It was a a, a marriage, a, a marital union with God. And so, and we see that God is trying to espouse himself to his people. And we see in the book of Revelation, it's the, it's the wedding feast. And, and, uh, and Jesus, will, we'll see later that when he was uh, pierced from his side, it was his side because just as the church was, the, just as Eve was made from uh, Adam's side from his, uh, from his rib, just as the church is founded because of the power of our bridegroom, which is Jesus Christ. So, uh, Jesus, God has been trying to espouse himself to his people and Jesus fulfills that in his one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So, uh, so God's plan to gather his family into one covenant finds its fulfillment in Christ's church. Church is a translation of the Greek word ecclesia, which means assembly or to the, to the called out ones. 
So the English word for church comes from the German Kirche, which means what belongs to the Lord. So the gathering of God's people into a single assembly began in the Old Testament through the covenants made with Abraham and Moses. And it acted as a sign for the future gathering of people from every nation into Christ's kingdom. And this is from Catechism 762. So, for example, just as the Israelites were a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6, all Christians share in Christ's priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. The ministerial priesthood of the Old Testament has continued through the successors of the apostles or the bishops and the priests they appoint. So, Jesus was that high priest, right? So, then he has a ministerial priesthood, which are found in the Catholic Church, a ministerial priesthood serving Jesus' people. But we are a, a kingdom of, of priests. So, Uh, just as the Old Testament was. And so Jesus, he sets apart 12 of his disciples and made them apostles, which comes from the Greek word apostolos, which denotes one who is sent as a messenger. So St. Luke records Jesus appointing the 12 in Luke 6, 13 through 17 and Matthew 10, 2 through 4. So as, uh, as the Catechism in 765 says, the Lord Jesus endowed his community with a structure that will remain until the kingdom is fully achieved. Before all else, there is a choice of the 12 with Peter as their head. Representing the 12 tribes of Israel, they are the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. The 12 and the other disciples share in Christ's mission and his power, but also in his lot. By all of his actions, Christ prepares and builds his church. And then uh, we see that the Bible teaches that the church is a single entity in Romans 12.5 and whose members are part of, Christ, uh, part of Christ and one another. So the body cannot be pulled apart. We all need each other. 1 Corinthians 12.27 and so Jesus, he founded a visible church, and we're going to see this later. When we, I'm pointing out scripture passages now, but we'll see it again later. Jesus founded a visible church in Matthew 16, 18, when he gave Peter the keys and uh, gave him the power to bind and loose in the church, and in, uh, the, and to the uh, rest of the apostles in Matthew 18, 17. St. Paul tells us that this was built on the foundation of the apostles in Ephesians 2, 20, and would have a hierarchy composed of deacons, according to 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, presbyters from which we get the English word priest in 1 Timothy 5.17 and bishops, 1 Timothy 3.1-7. So Paul even instructed one of these bishops, Titus, to appoint priests on the island of Crete, which is in Titus 1.5. And in the time of the apostles, believers were called Christians, but the church itself was not called the Christian church. It was simply referred to as the church. It was the church, as it is evident in Luke's description of what Paul and Barnabas did in the, in the city of Antioch in Acts 11 through 26, when it says, They met with the church and taught a large company of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were for the first time called Christians. So we had Christians, each individual, the believers themselves are called Christians, because which means little Christ. We are supposed to be like Christ to the world. And uh, the church was simply called the church. And actually it was called the church or the Catholic church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church for the first 16 centuries. And then it had, once there was the Protestant Reformation and all the schisms that happened and the breaking up of the body of Christ, we had, uh, there was all these other denominations and then there was the Catholic church. So Jesus's church is one. And now the Jesus's church is also holy. So we, we also covered a lot of scripture in the Pope episode where it talks about that the believers, that the followers of Jesus, his disciples are holy. And it's really as simple as this. The church is holy not because its members are perfect, but because of Jesus Christ. So the church then is the holy people of God and her members are called saints. 
lowercase saints. There is no contradiction in calling the church holy because it means through which God sanctifies sinners and admitting that all people, including Catholics, are sinners in need of God's grace. So there, the church is holy because of Jesus Christ. We are his body and Jesus is holy, so his body must be holy. And uh, and then the third is, the third marking of, the, of Jesus's church is Catholic, which comes from the Greek word, which means universal. Uh, and so that also means, though, that it's universal and it's along with it being one and having unity. So the first time that this ever was used by, was by St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of St. John. So he knew the apostles and he was on his way uh, in AD 107 or 110. He was on his way to Rome to be fed to lions. He was going to his martyrdom and there in St. Ignatius of Antioch. We're, we'll talk about this some other time, but he talks about the Eucharist, the church, and all these things. But this, he's the first one that we have in writing, at least, where we see the term Catholic being used. So he uh, penned it to the letter to the Christians who lived 600 miles away in the coastal city of Smyrna. He said, wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic church. So Catholic comes from the Greek word uh, kathalos, I probably butchered the <laughs> pronunciation, but which means according to, in the kata, the whole, holos. So kathalos, Catholic, it means according to the whole. So Christ's church is called the Catholic church because it's the same church regardless of the area or time in, the, in which it is found, because it contains the fullness of God's eternal plan of salvation for the human race. And we'll see in Ephesians later that it even talks about the church filling it, Jesus through his church fills all and is in all that means time space era this is going to be a church that lasts for all generation it's going to be everywhere because it's universal but it's also universal in the sense that we have three parts of the church here on earth we are the church militant so we are still in this spiritual battle we're still fighting and just as St. Paul says in Philippians, he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we are still in this uh, moving, we're pilgrims, right? So uh, parish, the term parish, which we refer to individual lowercase churches, we are moving together as a people towards our our home in heaven. So so we're the church militant. Then there's the church suffering, the souls in purgatory. And then, we're the ch then there's the church triumphant, which are uppercase saints. Those are people that are in heaven. And just to touch on that really quick, the canonized saints of the church are ones that through their intercession, God has performed miracles. So we know that these people are in heaven with God. And that doesn't mean somebody that hasn't been canonized, like most of our family members, that they haven't been canonized by the church, that they're not in heaven. There's a all, all saints day for all those people that are in heaven, but we're just not positive. We can't confirm or declare that. And these three parts of the church, the church uh, militant, church suffering, and church triumphant, we are all still one. We are all connected together. And so, and we are in need of each other. So the Bible even teaches us that the prayers of holy people are more effective than the prayers of less holy people. For example, after Job's friends sinned, God instructed them to have Job pray for them because Job was righteous and God would hear their prayers in Job 42, 8 through 9. And the same thing, James reflects that same thing in, five, in James 5, 16, where he says, the prayer of righteous man has great power in, in its effects. And who could be more righteous than the saints in heaven who have been cleansed of all sin, which is the church triumphant? We need their prayers. And uh, I mentioned, I just implied this earlier, but there's a difference between the capital C church and lowercase uh, C church. So 
so when we read saint paul's letters he's writing to an individual lowercase c church but as we see throughout when he refers to the broader church like when in acts they come together with the church that's the uppercase c church it's the broader church and so the jesus's church with that third marking is catholic universal and then this fourth marking is apostolic which means to be sent so jesus founded the church on the apostles the 12 apostles and it was going to last throughout all of the generations so and just in ephesians we see that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and it's clear in the in the gospels as well that jesus is establishing a church upon the apostles and so uh and i used to say this all the time as well that the church before i became catholic i said well the church is in the building as if that's like what the catholic church thought or taught or anything like that and i heard it uh recently too talking to uh um, a protestant friend just in the grocery store uh, that i ran into um uh, during the summer but the church doesn't say that the found the church is founded on is the foundation and pillars of the apostles are the church so according to the bible so does your church have apostolic succession the catholic church and the orthodox church are the only ones that can claim that it's been here for 2000 years so uh at the end of the first century the fourth pope clement the first reminded the christians in the city of corinth about apostolic successions he says this our apostles knew through our lord jesus christ that there would be strife for the office of bishop for this reason therefore having received perfect foreknowledge they appointed those who had who have already been mentioned and afterward added the further provisions that if they should die other approved men should succeed to their ministry. So we see that there's this succession happening already, but we're going to have an entire next uh, episode within this series about the successions in scripture and throughout the early church. So now let's move to scripture itself. So we see in the gospels, Jesus, Protestants, Catholics, anybody that follows Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus Christ has all of the authority. He has all of the authority and because we see that and specifically like in matthew 28 28 18 where he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so he has all of this authority the father has given jesus the authority on heaven and on earth so he even uses phrases such as uh that the father sent me into this world so in john 17 18 he's praying to the father in this high priestly prayer as you sent me into this world i also have sent them into the world so what did what how was he sent he was sent with authority so when he when scripture says that jesus was sent by the father it wasn't just like go and be crucified he went with a authority and that is you can see that throughout his whole entire life so that he went with authority to uh to this world so and now he says things such as this and matthew ten forty, he says he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me in luke ten sixteen, he says he who hears you hears me and he who rejects you rejects me and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me so we're seeing that he is sharing this authority with his apostles because he is so intimately connected with his church that he his bride so, and then in John 17, 18, as I mentioned before, as you have sent me, he's talking to the Father, into this world, I also have sent them into the world. So he is thanking the Father for having given him all authority on heaven and on earth. And now he's sharing that with his disciples or his apostles. And in John 20, 21, 
he tells his apostles, as the father has sent me, which is what? With authority. So I send you with authority. It is the authority of the church founded on the apostles. Peter and the apostles, Pope and the bishops have all of the authority according to Jesus Christ and scripture itself. Nowhere in scripture does it say that the, that the uh, all of the truth is found purely or solely or sufficiently in scripture, even though all of scripture is 100% true and it is God's truth and revelation. But who has the proper interpretation and the authority to interpret it and who has the authority for teachings, faith, and morally? That is the apostles founded on Jesus Christ and that is the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. And so uh, we saw in the in the papacy episode, Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus changes Peter's name from Simon to Peter, significant, gives him the keys of the kingdom. He's the only one with the keys of the kingdom, referencing back to Isaiah 20, 22, 22. And he has the power to bind and to loose in Jesus's kingdom church. So, uh, and then he shares that with all of the apostles in Matthew 18, 18. And just before Matthew 18, 18, before he tells that the apostles also have this power to bind and to loose, which means to to accept or reject certain teachings or doctrines that will be backed up by heaven itself. Uh, um, he is telling this uh, story about this this uh, person who has sinned against his brother. And he goes along the line, who is the last stop? He doesn't say, well, if he has done wrong and he doesn't listen to you, take him to bring with two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, bring them to the not the Bible. He says to bring them to the church. And then what does that? Ha- and then right after that, he gives the apostles that power to bind and to loose. And these are serious matters. And this is first seen. This is very act- the first time it's acted out is in Acts 15 at the first Jerusalem Council. They have a problem. They bring it to the church. And with Peter and the apostles, they say uh, people that were not Jewish before, they do not have to uh, take on circumcision and to abide by the Jewish customs in order to be Christian, but rather they are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So, uh, and that's so we see Matthew sixteen and uh, eighteen and Matthew eighteen eighteen with the authority of the church given from Jesus to the apostles. So now let's work through every single New Testament letter. So. In Romans, it says things in chapter 15, such as this. I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 16, Take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties and opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. So here we already see that there's this issue with authority. And St. Paul right here is reminding him that he has been given authority by Jesus Christ and the apostles. And and the church has the authority authority to teach because they have apostolic succession. We already see in the first generation of the church, there's other people teaching things that are contrary to the traditions handed on to from Jesus to the apostles. Then we move into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So that's actually where we get the word sacraments, uh, I believe at least, that we get the word sacraments. And when uh, St. Paul uses the term mysteries, that actually translates to sacramentum in Latin, which where we get the word sacraments. So he is a minister, as a steward of the mysteries of God, which are the seven sacraments that Jesus gave us. So, uh, and we see that multiple times in the epistles that he uses the word mysteries. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if then you have such cases, why do, you, why do you lay them before those who are least esteemed by the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no man among you wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood, but, bro- but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? So there he is also uh, referencing the authority of the church. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 8, he says, Do I say this on, my, on human authority? Because he knows that his office is divinely uh, instituted by Jesus, his office as bishop. And then you move into 2 Corinthians. St. Paul says things such as this, I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So he's talking to his people. In, the, in uh, chapter 2, In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. They speak in Christ because just as Saint, uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, he who hears you hears me. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, the apostles. And then he calls the followers in, Cor- in Corinth in chapter 6, I speak as to children because he is the father and faith to them. And then uh 2 Corinthians 10, 8, even as if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. There's his authority. In chapter 11, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted missions, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It is, no, it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So there is, people are trying to say that they're apostles because they already are seeing that the apostles have the authority. So in order for me to have authority, I have to look like an apostle. But people were de- were deceiving uh, some of the churches and some of the people, the followers of Jesus. And then we move into Galatians in chapter one. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, the three follower, the three apostles of Jesus who were closest to him, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, they, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So here we see, one, the authority of the apostles, but also it being shared with other people. And St. Paul was not a part of the original 12, or was he uh, part of the 12 when they uh, gave uh, somebody an office that was replacing Judas in, in, uh, in the book of Acts? So, St. Paul himself is a, a successor of the apostles, right? So we already see succession happening, but we're gonna, that's, that'll be saved for the next episode. Then in chapter five, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and he who is troubling you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So he's talking about his authority. Chapter six, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are, the, are of the household of faith. Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by his rule, upon the Israel of God. 
which is the church. And then we move into Ephesians chapter 1. Christ raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So here we see Jesus has been giving, he has power over all of the heavens principalities authority power and dominion so and then his body the church has that same because it is so connected with jesus and then chapter three through the church the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places wow okay let's just say that one more time through the church the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places and so the early church fathers and uh, doctors of the church talk about when St. Paul says principalities and powers in heavenly places, he, they're talking about the angels. So right here we see that even the angels with the beatific vision, the beatific vision is seeing God as who he is, they will know things through the church because Jesus has all that power and dominion over heaven and earth and he shares it with his body, the church. And through this church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in heaven. So the church is a glorious church because of Jesus. And then in chapter four, living the truth in love, we should grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament with the proper functioning of each part brings about the body's growth and builds itself up in love. So here, living the living truth is the church is connected to Christ. And just before the St. Paul is warning against false teaching. And then first Thessalonians chapter two, we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Chapter four, you know what instruct instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Chapter five, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So every single one of those three verses in first Thessalonians are because of being a demands of the apostles of Christ. So they have authority because they are apostles, whether they're the original 12 or successors. And they have authority over the followers of Jesus. Second Thessalonians chapter three. If anyone refuses to obey what we say in this letter, note that man and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not look on him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So this is what, honestly, all Christians should be doing. Not out of enemy, not trying to win an argument, just like this podcast. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to share what I came from and where the, the church is misunderstood and the truth of the church founded profoundly in scripture. So here we should be helping people to come to this gift that Jesus has given to us in the, the magisterium of the church and the Catholic church as a whole. It is Jesus's bride that he died for and it is incredible and this is the fullness of the Christian life right here in the Catholic Church. And let's move to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either, either what they are saying or things about which they make assertions. 1 Timothy 3.15, my favorite. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. <laughs> The Bible itself is pointing to the church as the fullness, the pillar and foundation of the truth, which 
is the church. And the church is what? Founded on the apostles, according to Ephesians. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In later times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So this entire thing is showing that the church founded on the apostles is the pillar and foundations of the truth and people that do not have apostolic succession, they are falling away from the fullness of the truth that Jesus founded. 2 Timothy 1.6 Remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. So this entire letter, uh, really 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, St. Paul is, he is going, he has already uh, gave Timothy authority as a bishop and he's now telling Timothy also how to appropriately uh, ordain bishops, other bishops for for succession. And so in chapter three, uh, verse five, holding the form of religion, but denying the power of it. I love it because so many people say that they're like, I love that video. I love Jesus, but I hate religion. Jesus founded a religion. The term religion means to bind together with God. So no matter what, if you are even spiritual or even you just believe in a God and you're trying to connect with the creator, you have a religion. And the Bible, like just like right here, it does not saying that religion doesn't have power. It's saying that religion has power, but there's people that hold the form of religion and deny the power of it. So religion has power and specifically the true religion and the Christian religion, the fullness of it in the Catholic faith is has power. And then later on in uh, that same uh, chapter, chapter three, He says this, For among them are those who make their way into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses, who will listen to anybody and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that that of those two men. So, here he's referencing again his his authority as an apostle of Jesus and other people trying to sway other people because of their false doctrines and people can be easily swayed. And then uh, in the letter to Philemon, he says this in chapter one, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say because he has, a, he has authority, he expects people to be obedient to it. In first Timothy, St. Peter said, or in first Peter, uh, Peter says, St. Peter says in chapter four, the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. I love this scripture, especially in this time of the, of the church where there are all these sexual abuse scandals coming out. And why is it being revealed first about the church? Because this is not a Catholic problem. This is a world problem. Any uh, institution group is struggling with sexual deviancy and sexual uh, promiscuity and just impurity. And why is this being revealed and so harshly to the Catholic Church? Because right here, first, even first uh, Peter, St. Peter says this, the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God, because we as the household of God, the church, judgment has to start with us because if we're not living up to the teachings of the church, then who will? And if people are wounded, who will come to the bride of the bridegroom, which is the church? Because the the bride, the church, should be a house like a hospital for people to come to, for people to seek safety. This is the church. And so the church from inside out needs to be cleansed so that the world can come to the church. So this time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And then later in chapter five, 
I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is not is to be revealed. Tend the flock of God that is your charge, not be constrained but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So it's interesting here that, so he says that he is a fellow elder, but he is not just another fellow elder, right? Because he was the only one given the keys of the kingdom back in Matthew. But even in this letter itself, he is sending it to other elders. <laughs> he is sending it to other elders because he realizes he has the, the, that one uh, last word authority that Jesus gave him to uh, tell, to turn and strengthen, strengthen the brethren, right? So when he says, when your faith I prayed for you that your faith may be strengthened and when your faith has returned, turn and strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what St. Peter right here is doing. As the chief apostle, as the first pope, he is telling uh, the other elders, the other bishops how to uh, handle their business as the office that they hold. And it's interesting too that he uses the word flock a few times here because guess what? He was appointed shepherd of the flock, right? By Jesus. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then in Second Peter uh, chapter two, he says this: There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their licentiousness, and because of them, the way of truth will be reviled. And their greed, they will exploit you with false words. From of old, their con- condemnation has not uh, has not be idle. And their destruction has not been asleep. Then the Lord knows how to to rescue the godly from trial and to keep their unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Scripture itself points to we need an authoritative church, and there's going to be people that teach and despise authority and uh, that teach that authority is bad and it's just me and the Bible alone or listen to my teachings because I have the correct interpretation of Scripture. And St. Peter warns that multiple times. And we just saw that one example here. Then in 1 John, he calls his readers, my little children in chapter 2, because he is the father in faith. He is an apostle. He's a bishop. Later on in chapter 2, they they went out from us, but they were not of us. So people were deceiving the followers of Jesus by false teachings because they were not following apostolic tradition or succession or the teachings of the apostles. And uh, th- uh, the third letter of John in chapter 10, or uh, verse 10, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge my authority. So St. John, he has authority because because he is an uh, apostle of Jesus and the church is founded on the apostles. And people uh, that don't acknowledge their authority, well, they start falling away from the truth. And we're going to see that later on. But this was wrapping up the authority of the Catholic Church profoundly found in Scripture. And as we can see, the church has the authority. And the next episode, we're going to talk succession of that authority because there are some people that claim that the original apostles had authority, but once we had the Bible, we did not need the church anymore. Well, we didn't even have the Bible for almost 400 years. So one, there was 37 popes before we even had a canonized Bible. So we needed that, but we needed more than just that first century generation. We saw throughout scripture already, but we're going to see it again, that St. Paul talks about 
uh, ordaining other bishops. So we are already going to see succession in scripture. We're going to see succession in the early church fathers during, before, and after the canonization of scripture. And so the authority is crucial according to scripture. And it's all because I love Jesus and I love the word and the word points to authority. And if you look at tradition, it also supports exactly what the Bible tells us that we need the church to, in order to hold that one holy Catholic and apostolic faith that Jesus Christ founded. If you want the fullness of truth, you have to have the church. And that is only found in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the next uh, episode, we're going to talk succession of the authority. And then another episode, we're going to talk about understanding that authority, doctrines versus dogmas, ecumenical councils throughout the 2000 years of history, and the consequences of not having the magisterium of the church. And we're going to clarify some misunderstandings of the church that once I held and that and I continue to hear today. So I'm praying for you all. God bless you. Please, if you have any comments, questions, or topics of request, email me. Or if you want to get to together and pray for some healing, shoot me an email and God bless you. I'm praying for you.